0: i Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Sophia A. McLennan will join us to discuss is Satire Saving Our Nation. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000, and our world-famous question a week, coming right up here on the Grok's Science Show. back to the Grox sign show. Well, satirical commentary on political events continues to entertain as well as inform, but has the role of satire in our society now shifted to a more prominent position such that it is now strongly influencing modern discourse? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Sophia A. mclennan Professor mclennan is Professor of International Affairs and Comparative Literature at the Pennsylvania State University. Her work focuses on the intersection between culture, politics, and society. She's the author of six books in which focus on cultural responses to complex social change, and most recently Colbert's America, Satire and Democracy. And her recent release, along with co-author Remy M. Meisel, is Satire Saving Our Nation, Mockery and American Politics. And she joins us today to discuss this uh, very fascinating issue. And Professor McClendon, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Certainly a fascinating book is Satire Saving Our Nation. I'm curious, how did you become interested in this topic of uh, satire and politics?
1: Well, you know, there's a couple of uh, ways to tell a story. One is that as an undergraduate, I went to Harvard and I worked on the Harvard Lampoon at the same time as Conan O'Brien and a number of people who went off to make a career in comedy and satire. So her who often works on difficult topics, writing about satire was a lot more fun and it allowed me to recapture my youth. <laughs> so that's one way to think about it. The other is that when Stephen Colbert went on the to the White House Correspondents Association dinner, it was a an opportunity to roast the President Bush and that event was recorded and put online and I was able to see it on a website. And when I saw Stephen Colbert critique the President to his face, I immediately thought that I was witnessing something somewhat extraordinary and I wanted to write about
0: it. So is this level of mockery or, or satire unique? I mean, certainly, as, as you point out in the book, it's satire has been nothing new, but uh, is satire, how it's done now in the current media age, something new?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's both things. One is, uh, satire has existed for centuries, scholarship on it, notes its presence, you know, anytime that we find any kind of recorded cultural uh, expression. But uh, today, satire plays a more prominent role in politics than it ever has in the history of humanity. So this is a very big deal, and there's a lot of different reasons why it's important to watch it.
0: You point out that uh, millennials may be particularly uh, the focus of of some of these uh, satirical outlets, more so than other generations.
1: It really is, and that's that's one of the things that makes satire so fundamentally different in political discourse today. So we talk about, in the book, we talk about what we call the citizen satirist. For a long time, we've talked about what we call the citizen journalist, which is the average citizen that records something with their phone and posts it on YouTube or sends it to CNN and actually plays a significant role in offering news media Well, now we're noticing what we call the citizen satirist, which is the citizen who posts a satirical tweet, creates a meme, or does something else that circulates primarily on social media, but then sometimes, uh, you know, entering into major media. And what they're doing is they're creating a commentary on politics that uses satire and that engages them directly, right, with changing the way people think about things. And that's a very, very exciting thing for our contemporary politics, to see young people feel engaged and, and empowered that way. We really have never seen anything quite like it in the history, again, of U.S. politics.
0: Uh, so does that level of engagement then manifest itself in more active young citizens and votes?
1: Absolutely. It's interesting because, you know, here we are coming out of the midterms and the big stories, the turnout was terrible. But people don't realize that the millennials turned out at 21.3%, which of course is quite low, but it was exactly what they did four years ago. And there are a lot of reasons why, you know, why people don't necessarily vote in midterms. But for millennials, the reasons they may not vote are a lot more challenging. One of them is that these are kids that are in school and they often have jobs. Today, about half of all college students also have jobs. So I had students tell me I can't make it to vote because I can't get to vote. You know, I can't do it. I can't get it into my schedule, which, you know, someone might say, look, if you were serious about voting, you would find a way to do it. But I I'd like to remind folks that uh, it's interesting to notice that the demographic that votes more is the demographic that's often retired or is, you know, not trying to juggle so many things.
0: A lot of these uh, satirical outlets of the Colbert Report and others seem to be more left-leaning in, in their uh, critiques. Is it sort of a, a uniquely um, left-leaning outlet, do you think, or did conservatives also make use of satire quite as prominently as
1: So I'm always c- concerned about getting cornered into making a partisan comment about satire because it, it would be easy to do. I'll simply say that, first of all, because satire questions the status quo, if your politics is a politics of defense and it's a politics of worry and it's a politics that is concerned about values, then you're not likely to be using satire, right? So one of the reasons why we tend to connect satire with the left or something progressive is because the kinds of questions satire asks are similar to the types of questions that people ask when they want more out of things, as opposed to saying, we need to go back to something, right? That's a simple way of thinking about it. It is true, though, and it has to be Stated as often as possible that all of the professional satirists, as well as, like I said, the citizen satirists, they go after the Democrats all the time. John Stewart's piece uh, right after midterm elections was called Obama and the Pussycrats, which doesn't sound very subtle to me. And then he went after, did a whole bit on critiquing Nancy Pelosi. So there, folks forget that Stewart Colbert, Oliver Bill Maher, certainly. But also, like I said, average citizens are using satire again and again to push on the Democrats, especially when they're doing things that they think deserve to be critiqued.
0: So do you think really that then the average citizen is more of a player now in terms of sort of shaping the dialogue?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's no question about it. So one example that we give in the book is uh, we start with a government shutdown, and we give an example of a tweet that was done by Judd Legum, who's an editor for Think Progress, And it was a tweet that just attempted to sort of capture the essence of the shutdown. And so it said, can I burn down your house? No. Can I burn down your garage? No. Which part of your house can I burn down? None you're not compromising (laughs) that tweet was ended up uh, being read on the congressional floor. So now it's part of the congressional record, but it was also retweeted 20,000 times. So roughly right. You know, 150,000 people probably saw it on Twitter and that's a conservative estimate. That's just one example. We have people to have personal Twitter accounts with something close to 200,000 followers who are doing nothing but tweeting satirical information about politics. So this is a really big difference.
0: Do you think uh, people are just now more critical about what they're receiving in terms of information from the news? Do you think uh, satire is just sort of a reflection of, of a more critical nation now?
1: You know that's a great question. The thing is that, and we trace this. You know, you you want to you want to look at the history of news in this country and notice the kind of significant downturn we've had in the quality of the news today. So that most of the time, if you're tuned into a news station, you're getting opinion and not fact. And even on those show those channels that tell you that they're giving you facts. When they say they're giving you facts, often those facts are not correct. I mean, you've seen the recent uh, explosion over the Benghazi reports. Uh, you know, a lot of the stations aren't even really fully reporting the outcome of that those discoveries. So what happens is that we now have research where we are able to go out and ask folks what their news sources are, and then test them on the knowledge that they have of the world around them. And that knowledge, in certain cases, is quite low. Whereas the people who watch the satirical shows, they have higher scores than people who watch cable news or even network news. So that is one part of it. The other, like you said, is what is this critique all about? Well, part of it is that we've been fed so often misinformation that our first instinct is to question whether or not it's true. In the end, though, that critique is very, very good for our democracy because you want citizens to question information. You want them to ask whether or not this is right. And that's, how, that's one of the, the things people do. They worry, oh, if you're asking questions, it means you don't have faith in your country. It's like, well, it's just a democracy. We're not supposed to have faith in it. We're supposed to ask a lot of questions of it, push it to make the best of it at every moment. So that critique and questioning is, is actually a good, healthy sign.
0: Uh, So overall, then, do you think uh, satire is saving our nation?
1: I think it is. I mean, one of the things that's important to point out is that, you know, in a perfect world, we wouldn't have as much satire because we would have the news media doing its job and we would have politicians being honest. (laughs) And all of these things wouldn't be necessary. But in the absence of that, satire ends up playing a major role in helping citizens sort through information and make informed decisions. Because, you know, I mean, one of the things that's going on with satire is that the satirists are the ones that are pushing on the lack of real scientific information in the news media's coverage of things like climate change. So it's been kind of invigorating to watch, too. So, and, you know, Al Franken is at the top. You know, Al Franken, who was formerly a comedian, is now at the top fighting for net neutrality. That There's some very interesting... Uh, pieces to the story where, again, the satirists are picking up on stories that don't necessarily hit the mainstream ends, right? And they're the ones, so there was a great line from Colbert the other night that said, I don't know why we want would want to let scientists to tell us anything about science. They did a mashup of all of these uh, con- congresspeople and senators saying, I'm not a scientist, but blah 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 I'm not a scientist but you know like so he they'll do these things where they just show a clip of one person after another after another and and as you're watching this on here you're like how is it the case that our politicians just willfully ignore science as though that's fine like, well
0: that's, I guess science I guess uh, gets in the way of a good uh, political speech or something and so, a good
1: pipeline yeah, yeah. D-
0: indeed <laughs> well then maybe I'll ask is so is, is satire saving our science then
1: yeah, well, I mean, this is the exciting thing is that the, because the satirists don't have, you know, the same sorts of pressures that some of the news media has, they can ask some questions that you're not going to hear. And what they keep asking is what exactly is going on that's taking the scientific community out of these conversations about climate change and about energy in general. And so, or how to handle every single one of the satirists reminded their audiences that the conversations we were hearing, both from the politicians and the media, were not helping us be informed. So I think they perform a very important corrective role. Uh, and, you know, they, they, again, remind us it should be the scientists telling us about science and not the politicians.
0: Well, it's a train of thinking and satire and science, which is always to be critical, definitely appeals to that kind of mindset.
1: Well, and they have scientists a lot on their shows to promote their books, right? Um, These guys don't end up on other folks' shows in the same measure. So that's a very exciting thing. Or even when Naomi Klein you know, was promoting her new book, This Changes Everything, which really is about the connections between uh, capitalism and climate change. Colbert had her right on. And this is very important, I think, uh, again, in promoting democracy, because these are issues crucial to the health of our nation. And we have politicians that will stand in front of us again and again and say, I'm not a scientist, but is what i think and it's very 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 useful to have the satirists remind us that that doesn't make any sense
0: especially since many of these issues global warming and gm foods for example they all are public policy issues but require scientific knowledge
1: well, right, and one of the things we write about in the book is a, the group called the Yes Men, and they do this thing called culture jamming. So these are two guys that can suit up and literally look like representatives for GE. And they went once and they, they impersonated the Department of Energy, and they said that they were going to revisit the department's climate Position And they held a press conference and people came and covered the conference. And so what they do all the time is just try to call attention to issues by impersonating people and say, you know, embodying what they think should be the right approach. And so they're often digging straight into issues related to science. Um, so they're, they're really fun to watch.
0: Uh, also, I wanted to ask you, you, you co-authored the book with uh, an undergraduate student at uh, Penn State. Well, this is sort of a unique thing, I, I gather, um, professor and undergraduate student writing a, a heavy tome on the subject. Uh, did you actively seek out that opinion from that generation, or how did this come about?
1: Yeah, I mean, we love to pitch it as the millennial and the scholar. Uh, Remy and I had already blogged together for Huffington Post. We both had met through our shared interest in Stephen Colbert's comedy. So we had this history of working together that was really effective. And so we decided to try to do this. At the time, we did not realize we were literally making Penn State history. This is the first time in the history of this university a faculty member has written a book with an undergraduate as peers. And so we're very excited to have hopefully started a trend.
0: Well, I certainly hope people will go out and take a look at at the book. It's uh, called Is Satire Saving Our Nation? Mockery in American Politics. And the authors are uh, Professor Sophia A. McLennan and Remy Mazel. Professor McLennan, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
1: And thank you for having me.